I'm Doug Fern, and this is my take on music recording. Jason Miles is a keyboard player, synthesist, and producer who has worked with artists such as Miles Davis, Luther Vandross, David Sanborn, Whitney Houston, Michael Jackson, Sting, Chaka Khan, and many others. He has performed in places like Carnegie Hall and the Hollywood Bowl. His long career in the music business goes back to the 1960s. I asked Jason to tell the story of his evolution through the decades. Well, I mean, you know, I, I, when I was young, I, I, I wanted to play an instrument, you know. And my parents, they thought that the accordion looked pretty good, and I didn't. I wanted to play drums. And they wanted to, um, you know, have me uh, uh, do a... Uh, you know, uh, some, a, a, a normal instrument. Guitar? No, 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 no guitar. The calluses on the finger. You know, I wanted the, 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 the Jewish prince to get anything going on, you know. And so, and so, you know, so I got an accordion. I started playing like when I was seven. And as it was going on, I was, I was playing. But by the time I was 12, and, 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 and I had really gotten good on the accordion. By the time I was 12, I was, I was tired of it, man. I, I was seeing piano players play really hip music and you know, I was uh, I, I was seeing organ players play Jimmy Smith and stuff like that, and I wanted to change. And so and so actually, I wanted to play organ, and so I ended up getting a, an organ, and my parents got me an upright piano. You know, I started going from there. I mean, you, you know, you, there was so much music in New York anyway. You know, tons of music there was. So the reality is that um, I was in the middle of of so much stuff in New York. Even when I was young, you know, my parents bought albums. You know, they bought like all these different albums: Jackie Gleason and orchestra. And so I, Terry Gibbs. So I got to hear like a lot of music and everything. And I, and I love I love music, you know. But as time went on, you know, the Beatles came, and I think that when the Beatles came, honestly, I think that was the big wake up sign. Like, wow, this could be cool to be in a band. And so I started playing in bands, you know, and I was playing the organ in bands. And I was studying piano also. And then I started studying piano with like a great jazz pianist named Rector Bailey, who lived in Brooklyn. You know, he, he, he really opened up my eyes to the chord changes and all that stuff like that, that really created the music. Unfortunately, I didn't stay with him for the more than two years, because then I went off to college because, um, you know, I didn't want to go to the war. So I went uh, out to college and I couldn't get out of the, out of the draft. So I ended up going to college, and uh, in college, I didn't like what was going on in, in the music program at Indiana State University, so... I was going and, and you know, like, because uh, I was thinking in a, in a whole other way. I came from a very progressive music scene, you know, and now all of a sudden, you know, I'm going backwards in, in what it is. And so, you know, the reality is that, uh, um, you know, I started listening a lot more in college because I had all this time to myself because there really wasn't a lot to do. And then when I got my, then when I met Kathy, my girlfriend, you know, we would just hang out and listen to records, smoke pot, you know, do all of this, you know, stuff to get into music. And right down the road from me was the Columbia Record Club. They had a warehouses full of albums. You know, everybody got their stuff in the mail, you know. And so what happened was that um, Kathy, when she graduated, she started, for, you know, and, and, and I, had a, I, had a, I had a keyboard out there. I had sold my stuff in New York because my parents were moving to Florida. So I had a keyboard. Uh, and, and, and so I started really, really, really listening to music you know, like uh, on, on records, because I would go and I would get the albums for a dollar a piece. And I'd, and I'd get all these amazing jazz albums and other albums when everybody was buying rock and country. You know, I was buying CTI records and Atlantic jazz, Columbia jazz, you know, also rock records. Also, I love rock. I love The Who. And I, I, back then, I liked The Grateful Dead. 
and uh, Jeff Beck, you know, like I, 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 I love the Sly and the Family Stone. I mean, I was listening to all the bands, of course, the Beatles and everything, you know. But but also, I should go back a little farther and say that I used to play in New York at a lot of like you know uh, like Sweet Sixteen parties and graduation parties and school dances and temple dances and then my band would go away to the Catskill Mountains during the summertime and certain weekends and holidays we'd go up there and we'd play and it was a whole other kind of musical education for me saying man this is the life man you know I don't have to get up until 12 you know I can hang by the pool and then go to work tonight and play for three hours and then I'm done you know and I love playing and so, you know, something I wanted to do, but like I said, you know, the, you know, the whole, I worked in all the very cool Jewish hotels, you know, there was, it, was a, it was a real scene. I saw a lot of music up there also. Jason, what, 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 this was like in the 60s, late 60s? Yeah, yeah, this was, my, my first year in the Catskill Mountains was 1966, so I did 67, 66, 67, and 68, did something else the summer of 69, and then, when, then I went to school. Uh, yeah, I was in the 60s, you know, during the, the amazing time for music because things in the country were really terrible in the 60s, you know. There was a lot of unrest. There was a lot of social unrest, man, you know. And uh, assassinations, Martin Luther King, Bobby Kennedy, Malcolm X, you know, all of this stuff, man. And it was really upheaving the country. But music was what really held us together. It was so much great, great, great music. We depended on, on music to listen to that, and, and that kind of lifted the mood of, of the moment, you know. Yeah, you, you know, during that time, I remember every single day you could turn on the radio and hear something you never heard before. It was it was so foreign sounding until you sat down and listened to it for a bit, and and then you you know you it, it became familiar and comfortable. But there was so much new stuff every day. Well, FM radio really changed the the. The scope of rock music and everything—that's that, that you know—that's for sure, and uh, and and other kinds of music as as well. But just remember, you know, the AM radio used to be able to have the you, know, you used to listen to the Beatles, and right after that was Dean Martin. Everybody's got to love somebody sometime, or, or or Barbara Streisand singing People, and then the Rolling Stones was singing Satisfaction after that. So the AM stations really there was there was there was no kind of rule as to what they played. There were singles that they played, but they but they played the music of the day, you know. Yep. from all different kinds of things, and, and that way it was so diversified. So when I went to college, you know, I started seeing some more live bands playing, because I, I used to go to the Fillmore East all the time, man, all the time. Fillmore East, Cafe Agogo, um, some of the jazz clubs that were, that were happening. There was a jazz club down the block from me in Brooklyn, the Bamboo Lounge, which was made famous in Goodfellas. Um, and so, you know, when I, when I went to college, what really changed around, for me, two things changed around. I started really getting into the sound of the Fender Rhodes, and that was really having a big influence on me. I had a Wurlitzer electric piano in college, and I was playing that, but it wasn't that Fender Rhodes, you know. And then, you know, I started hearing, you know, you know, more Bitches Brew, of course, totally flipped me out when I when I heard Chick Corea on it, who I never heard of before, you know, and Joe Zavinal, who I knew who he was because of Mercy, 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 and I would buy Downbeat magazine, and Joe would be in there and. And, you know, I saw all of these, you know, different kinds of vibes happening, everything around these electric instruments, and that had a big, huge influence on me. And so uh, one day I was walking by the, uh, the, the, the music hall at my school, and I heard this big sound, and I walked in there, and there was this guy on stage with this instrument, and I walked up, and I said, hi, and he goes, hi, who are you? My, 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 name, my name is Jay. What, who are you? I'm Bob. Oh yeah, what's that? That's my, that, that's what I invented. That's the Moog synthesizer. Ah, no kidding. And I said... <laughs> 
And I said, wow, really? He goes, yeah, go ahead, try. And I heard this thing, man. It was like, whoa, I didn't know what I was doing with it or anything, you know. But it was like, wow, man, this is unbelievable. Then I started hearing bands use it, and I just said, you know, this is where I want to be. This is what I this is what I really want to do. And then all of a sudden, these albums came out, like Herbie Hancock, Headhunters, Light as a Feather by Chick Corea, Weather Report, like I said, Miles and Bitches Brew. And, you know, these were these were projects that had, like, a big effect on me and, and my way of, of hearing music. Then all of a sudden, I started hearing synthesizers, you know, which were you know ancient at that point you know you know the the first the first ones and i just decided you know uh, uh i got to do this and you know kathy we were just together for a couple of years and i said i you know i'm not going to tell you, you have to do this with me you know because i only want you know to be happy and everything but i want to go back to new york and i, I want to try to make it in the music scene there you know and i came back to new york after college with nothing absolutely nothing books little furniture and the dog and the trailer on the station wagon and you know started like going around that my I knew some people on the inside that kind of you know I would go see them play but nobody was giving me any breaks and everything you know and people were giving me advice like Don Grohl like be prepared to go for long periods of time without making money and um, you know uh, as it was going on though I really realized this man I don't know how this is going to work, man, but some of these guys that are playing are like unbelievable. I'd go to McKell's and hear like Don Grolnick and Richard T and just say, oh, my God, man, how, you know, this is this, so much competition in New York. But I always had that sound in my head that I wanted to hear. So where other people were like hustling and everything like, like that, you know, do gigs here, gigs there. I was trying to really work on myself. And I started studying bebop piano in, uh, with this great piano player in, in uh, Pennsylvania, in, in a Delaware Water Gap, Mike Melillo, who was playing with Phil Woods at that time, so I got to meet them. Then I met Joe Zavinal on a crazy night in New Jersey in, in February 1974. It was a crazy night, and I, I met him at this, at, at this club, and you know, started talking to him, and we became friends. I became friends with Cats and Weather Report, and, you know, but still... You know, nobody was like saying, oh, hey, man, come on and do this, come and do that. But so another thing that I that I did was I started restudying classical piano and classical music and everything. And so I, I, I didn't know really what to go. But, but this guy that was helping me with electronic music, who was playing with Larry Coriel, Mike Mandel, turned me on to this woman named Lucy Green, who ended up being like one of the most important people in my whole life. I studied with her for like 20 years. And she was unbelievable, and she brought my head to a whole other place as a musician. Mike, Mike always told me, you know, you're going to be okay on piano. You'll play piano and everything, but you know what you got to learn, man, is how to be a musician. And I never quite knew that, man, until it started really unfolding in front of me. So here I was in New York, you know, trying to, still not a lot of stuff was happening. I was getting little things here and there. Kathy was working, you know. We were living outside the city because I didn't want to live in town. And, and it was just like, you know, even though I was from Brooklyn and everything like that, it was, you know, I, I was used to living in the country in Indiana and didn't know whether I wanted to live next to neighbors and everything, you know. And so what, and, and so what happens was that, you know, I started, you know, doing some of it and, and I got my first ARP Odyssey. I saved enough money to get a Fender Road suitcase. And the guy that was my next door neighbor all made this box called the Mutron, which was getting very, very famous. And he made this Mutron phaser which Joe Zavinal was using and everything, but this guy was my neighbor. And so I started using his stuff on my keyboards, and then I got other stuff, got a wah-wah pedal and ring modulator and echoplex and all of this stuff to really give me that sound, you know? And so what happened was that I just kept on working and working. I started getting some gigs here and there. I really did, and because I was really progressing, you know, especially on the electronic music thing. I was getting good on the synthesizers because you had to know about synthesis. 
And then what happened was the Prophet 5 got introduced, the polyphonic synthesizer, and the same guy that hooked me up with Lucy knew a good hookup in San Francisco, and I ended up getting a Prophet 5. It took me like eight months to get because it was so hard to get. But I got one, and that changed everything because now I was programming my own stuff, and I was making sounds, and I was making you know, music happen with this thing, and you were able to save your programs even though they got dumped a bunch. You know, I mean, it was a new technology, and I was right there with it, man. And people were hearing my stuff, and they went, well, it doesn't sound like the instrument that I got. Well, that's because I reprogrammed all the songs. And they go, wow, you know, people were flipping out because they, they didn't know the capability of the instruments because they were only listening to what was there. They weren't synthesists. And I was rapid, rapidly approaching of being a keyboard player synthesist, you know. And so what happened was that, you know, one day I knew this piano player named Kenny Kirkland. He was an amazing player, unbelievable player, man. He was, you know, younger than me, a little younger than me, a couple of years, but he was something else, man. And so Kenny and I used to hang in everything a bunch, you know, because I admired him so much. And he was, a, he was, he's a crazy, crazy dude, you know what I mean? Fun, you know, and a monster player. And so what happened was that he called me and was, you know, I got this Japanese record date coming up. You know, I'm going to be playing synthesizers on it. I'm going, that's great, man. He goes, yeah, except I really don't know about synthesizers. I know about the mini Moog a little bit. I know about the Prophet and all that other stuff. And you got that together. So I was, I was wondering, man, you, why don't you bring some gear down to the studio? And, you know, you'll, you know, you'll, you'll work the synthesizers. You'll, you'll get the sounds and everything. And then I'll do the parts that they want me to do. And we can do this together and everything. And I'll give you $500. And I said, $500, man? It was 1979. It was like, yeah, I'll take $500, you know? So, uh, so I, I brought my, my Prophet 5, and, and at that point, I, 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 know I had another synthesizer also, and I brought my Arp Odyssey, went to the studio, man, and they were loving it. They were just loving it, man. They were going, oh, sound amazing, amazing, because I knew how to make the sounds. And so Kenny goes, well, man, this was really great. You know, you should do this kind of stuff, man. You know, and I, that's kind of launched my career into programming, you know, synthesizers, because there were a lot of keyboard, there were a lot of keyboard players with synthesizers, but not a lot of keyboard players who were synthesists as well and there were a small group of us that really got into it you know and so i got a profit 10 i got some other stuff happening you know and i started getting more gigs but still not like the super a level gigs you know because it was closed it, it was like political so political you know and people would be getting gigs and then you know one day uh, in 1984 i was with kathy and we, we had a terrible day it was freaking terrible we lost money on a, on a project that I've been working on for like three years of our, our songs. We started writing songs together because she was a phenomenal lyricist. And we were really like, you know, getting in tune with each other, even more so after being together for over 10 years at this point. And so what happened was that um, I started, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, thinking, you know, what, 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 what are we going to do from here? Because my lawyer did a deal for me where, you know, like, where I, I made $1,000 and spent $5,000 to do the deal. You know, it was ridiculous. And so we went to this restaurant on her birthday, January 24th, 1984, and walked in the place. And my favorite sushi chef was there, and he would take care of us because we didn't have a lot of money. And I sat there, and Kathy looked at me. It was a big sushi bar. And she says, look at the end of the sushi bar over there. I go, yeah. She goes, you know who that is? Well, that, that's Michael Brecker. And, of course, I knew Mike. He, he, he played on my album and everything, my first album, Cosmopolitan, in 1979 when I got my profit. And I had, you know, I see him around town and everything like, like that, you know. But And we say, hey, man, what's happening, you know? But, you know, but, but we, we weren't like really, you know, close friends and everything. We were more like musical acquaintances. But he had had, and this is no secret, you know, he had had issues with, with the substance abuse, you know. 
And so uh, he got out of rehab, and everybody says, oh, man, Mike Brecker is doing amazing, man. He's doing so good. I'm going, I'm so happy. And he goes, yeah, man, he's killing it, you know. So I see Mike, and he, and, and, and I, I walk to the end of the sushi bar, and I said, hey, Mike, man. He goes, oh, Jay, man, whoa, what's happened? Well, wow, I was thinking about you a couple of weeks ago. I'm going, really? And he goes, yeah, I was thinking that if anybody knew about, about MIDI and what was happening with synthesizers, that you were the guy. And I said, I started laughing. Well, I'm I'm pretty knee deep in it, man. You know, and he said, Oh, I can't even find a DX7. And I said, I'll get you DX7 tomorrow. It's impossible. Nobody can get a DX7. I'll get you a freaking DX7 tomorrow. And so I said, Well, why don't you come down and join us for dinner for Kathy? It's, it's her birthday. Oh, I'd love to. So we came down and we started talking. He was telling me about steps ahead. He was doing an album. Uh, and so uh, you know, he was there and he goes, Can you really get a DX7? I said, Kathy, will you tell him I can get him a DX7? He can get you a DX7. And she goes, she knows about it. He goes, I got freaking people calling my house all day long who wanted to know where I got my DX7, you know? Anyway, my friend had a music store. When, when, when I wasn't making money, I developed this little side hustle of like, you know, I would turn people onto my friend's music store and he would give me a percentage of the sale. And people were buying shit like crazy back then, man. You know, so I, so I always just tell them, you know, if you get DX7s in, man, you should stash it. Stash a couple of them because you never know who's going to ask me. Well, the first person that asked me that saw my DX7 was Peter Frampton, you know? And, uh, and, you know, that's 1984, you know, he was still Peter Frampton, you know, it's a, a little bit of a vibe. And so what happened was that, you know, Peter was like, I can't believe you got me this thing, man. Yeah, man, you know, no problem. So I said to Mike, you know, I said, I'm, I'm, I'm sure that my friends got a couple squirrel the way I told them. He goes, wow, it'd be unbelievable. So Kathy goes, he can get it for you, don't worry about it. So I called him up and next he goes, yeah, I got one. He says, you know who Michael Brecker is? Michael Brecker, oh my God, yes. So well, I, I want to get this for him. So I, he sent me to the house. And then like two days later, I, was, I, I went over to Mike's house. And uh, he was like, you're unbelievable, man. I've searched the whole world for this thing. I couldn't find, nobody had him in stock to sell him. Here, you get this, man. You, you know, it's amazing. So we really started hanging because he started seeing, well, you really know what you're doing with this stuff. I'm going, yeah. So he started getting into this thing because he had this wind instrument that Niall Steiner invented, the Steiner phone, that was going to let him interface into synthesizers and everything. And he really wanted to have a portion of him that was electric. He was a jazz musician. He was a jazz musician, but... But, you know, but he was also a number of other things. He was a pop saxophone player who can play pop solos. And he really wanted to get into, like, you know, sequencing and that whole deal. And, you know, I was there in the middle of it. And what happened was that as time was going on, I was getting calls from you know, people. Hey, Jason Miles. Yeah, hey, I heard you're really good, man, with this stuff, man. Can you want to come down and do a session for us? Blah, 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 blah. You know, a little thing here and there. Okay, you know, it's going, wow, okay. So one night... When Kathy was in Indiana, she went back to visit her family. It was in June of, of I think, 19... It was June 1984. I went into the city because, because Mike had called me. We were hanging like crazy. And one of the things about me was that I wasn't into drugs. And back then, no, none, nobody ever considered pot drugs. So they didn't give a shit. You know what I mean? Pot, oh, please leave me alone with that shit. You know, people were into hard drugs. And Kathy and I weren't into any of that stuff where the New York scene was totally ravaged by it. And I wasn't into cocaine and all that other stuff and heroin. And people were. And so Mike felt like, well, these are Jason and Kathy, man. They're great people. And, you know, they're, they're the kind of people I need to hang out with. So, you know, he was changing. He met his wife and everything. So anyway, what happened, though, was that I looked at the bar because he said to me, he called me, he goes, man, you should come down to Visione's tonight, man, because Bob Mincer's playing. And uh, what happens is that, uh, you know, you should go and uh, come in, man, because all the cats are going to be there. And I'm going, oh, that would be great. Thanks for telling me, man. So I go down to the city. I walk in and I see Mike at the bar, which, you know, he, he was totally great controlling himself and everything you know he, he had been three years sober at this point and so what happened was that um 
He said, hey, what's going on, man? So I also realized this, man. You know, you go and you have your interaction, man. And then so many people want a piece of these people. Just let it go. You know, let, let it flow, man. You know, you'll, you, know you, you don't have to be on, you're with these people all the time for them to appreciate what you are. And so the next thing you know, I see him talking to this drummer, this famous drummer, Lenny White. And he's like looking over towards me and everything. And he's like pointing to the other side of the room. And I'm going, oh, it's Lenny talking to Michael. Man, it's deep, you know. Next thing you know, man, somebody taps me on the shoulder. I look up and I go, whoa, Lenny White. Well, man. And he goes to me, man, who would like some of your favorite producers, man? And I said, me? He goes, yeah, man. Who's like favorite? I said, oh, that's easy, man. You know, Trevor Horn with Art and Noise and stuff like that. He goes, what, 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 what? Oh, oh, we are definitely going to be working together, he said to me, you know. He said, you like Trevor Horn? I said, oh, my God, Trevor Horn, man. Come on, man. ABC and Art of Noise and, uh, you know, uh, I forgot what else. Grace Jones. He hadn't done Grace Jones yet, you know. But it was like, man, you know. So we, anyway, Lenny didn't call me for a while, and uh, nothing was really up. But then January of 1985, and we bumped into each other. He goes, we're going to do something. We're going to do something. January 1985, he calls me up one cold night and says to me, hey, man, have you heard from Marcus Miller? And I said, no, I haven't. Because I knew Marcus also. He played on my first album, you know. I said, no, I haven't. Well, he's going to call you, man, because we're starting a new project tomorrow. And I told him that he should definitely use you. And I'm going, wow, that's cool. Thank you. And he goes, yeah, I'll see you at the studio. Yeah, but I haven't heard from him. You'll hear from him. So I say, here's his number. So I call his number. He's busy for like four hours, you know. Sunday Sunday night, call, no call waiting, you know what I mean? But I end up calling him. Because who even knew what call waiting was, you know. So anyway, you know, I'm, I'm calling Figgy's on the phone with his girlfriends or something, you know. So the next morning, like 8 a.m., he calls me and he asks me if I'm going to be available that day. Can I come to the studio and bring some keyboards? And I said, yeah. And you know what, man? We started this album called Jamaica Boys. And that, from that day, I, I worked with Marcus for a solid, like, nine years. We were, we were a team for, like, nine, nine years. He brought me in on David Sanborn and some other stuff. And he was elevating himself as a producer. And back then, the synthesizer vibe was the shit. That, that, you know, that, that, was, that, that was the deal. And uh, he had seen me play live with the Rising Sun Band in New York, where I, where I brought up my Prophet 10, and we would get crazy sounds happening in the, in the middle of the music. And played all the clubs and everything, so people saw me, you know, you know, you know, you know, do this certain thing. But in the studio, I knew how to put it all together because number one, in 1980, I I bought my own studio. This Japanese guy offered me a Tascam 80-8 with DBX and a board for like three thousand dollars, you know. And I said, whoa. And and what happened was that my father had passed away, and my and my mother wanted to give me some money from that. To do to do what I knew, I wanted to do, and I ended up buying the you know the the, the studio, and so all of a sudden I had my own eight track studio in the house, you know, after having a four track studio, and so you know all of a sudden you know Marcus has started working with him. I'm doing David Sanborn, I'm doing you know some other people, man, a couple of remixes here, we're building up because his production chops stuff is building up, you know, into like real for serious shit. Next thing you know. I'm at home in January of uh, uh, late January two of the uh, '86, and I get a call from him telling me, "Hey, man, what are you doing tomorrow?" I'm going, well, "Nothing much, man. I'm 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 around." You know, he goes, "Well, you want to come in and do some demos for Miles Davis?" And they went, "Miles, man, really? Well, Miles was my dream. That was my dream. That's why I came back to New York. I wanted to work with Miles. I wanted to play that shit with Miles." And I and, and when I saw him play, I realized there's going to be no chance that I ever get to work with Miles ever. You know, until I really realized what the whole scenario was, was that Miles always had his ear to the ground, was always listening for who's happening and who's what. So he found Marcus through somebody. And then Marcus, you know, we did these demos. And the next thing you know, man, Marcus gets the gig. And we're in there making this album with Miles at, at Clinton after they did some L.A. sessions. 
Uh, and the next thing you know, we're in there, man. I'm meeting Miles, you know, and it's deep, very deep, man, you know. I'm working on eggshells, but he turned out, you know, to be just not what everybody thought he was, or, or at least what I thought the myth was about him, you know. And uh, because he was a great guy. He, he was really nice to me. I mean, he, you know, in the beginning, it was kind of like, uh, you know, okay, I, I get it. Because, because, you know, Miles' racial divide is very deep, man, of, of, of all the observations that he saw. You know, uh, back in the 50s when he went to Paris and he was treated like a king over there, you know, five-star hotel. And then he, and then he goes, a guest of the king of Sweden and everything like that. Comes back, they put him on a movie, Elevators to the Gala with Jean Moreau. He comes back to the United States and he can't use the freaking bathroom in North Carolina, you know. And I mean, you know, so how's he, how's he supposed to feel, you know. Uh, the day that, his, you know, Kind of Blue came out and it's making a lot of noise and people are loving it. He's playing at Birdland and cops beat the shit out of him outside because he wanted to escort this woman to a cab or something like that. They'll move. He goes, well, I want to bring her to the cab. And he freaking bangs him over the head and everything. I mean, you know, these are the things that, that he saw. So, um, you know, immediately he, you know, he had like a little vibe towards you until he figured out, you know, because I, I always say this in my one-man show because I do a one-man show. I tell all these stories in my one-man show, you know, um, that I mix with music. It's called Musical Biography. And what happens is that um, I walk in there to see him I didn't. I, I just said I had to take the step, and you know, Marcus said to me, "You're gonna be here like five minutes or five weeks." And I said, "Well, I hope it's five weeks." And he goes, "Yeah, we all hope it's five weeks. You know, we need you. You know." So anyway, we was. I walked in there, and I said to him, I looked at Miles, and he was messing around with his trumpet, and I said, "Miles, man, uh, you know, uh, my name is Jason Miles, and you know, those are my keyboards out there. All the stuff that we've been doing is Marcus and myself, you know, and and we've been putting together the songs and everything that you've been hearing." And he looks up and says to me. I like your name, <laughs> and I went, and I went. Well, thank you very much, man. You know, and and they well, I'm busy. I go, okay, okay, no problem. Go ahead. I go, wow, I think I made it through. So he started coming out, and he started checking out, and the stuff was sounding great immediately. You know, when when he came out into the room, we were doing this tune, Full Nelson, and it really, it, it really was sounding really funky, man. It's totally fresh because it was a whole new fresh thing. Because I was working with sampling technology at that point, and when a lot of other people weren't, it was it, it was very new. And so I had an emulator too with a lot of samples and a lot of sounds and a lot of interesting things. And I blend that with my synthesizer rig that I had because I had, I, I had a nice little synthesizer rig. It wasn't as big as it, it, it expanded to, but it, it was a nice rig I had. And so, um, you know, uh, uh, we listened to this stuff and everything. So in the beginning, he kind of like was just feeling me out. So, so he came up with like a pet name for me. And the, the, and, and the pet name was, uh, was uh, Whitey. <laughs> okay. Whitey. Hey, you know, but 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 you know what, man? After we started listening to the tunes, about a week later, okay. Well, first of all, even in the middle of that, you know, I mean, he uh, he was still nice to me and everything. Cause he saw what what we would do, and you know, but he was always you know kind of on guard. And and a couple of things that happened, you know, we walked in the studio one day, we're in this beautiful sweater, gorgeous sweater, and I looked at him and I said, Miles, man, that sweater is freaking gorgeous. And he goes to me, Oh, glad you like it, man. Uh, you know, you have an American Express card? I go, yeah. And he goes, well, maybe we'll go shopping one day, man, but you're going to need it. <laughs> and I said, uh, I said, oh, well, all right, man, you know, and that's everything, you know. So uh, so that, that was, because that was, Miles really got me into clothes. Miles really got me into clothes. He really did. He said, just remember, man, it's all part of the show. Mm-hmm. And I was like, you know, you're, you know, you're right. It defines your personality a bit. And so what happened was that, you know, maybe like about a week later, after we were doing Tutu, another incident that happened was that he was drawing a little thing on a piece of paper, a stick figure, and he drew this like little design around it and everything. It was kind of cool. 
So we just put it on the table, and he was splitting, and he goes, Miles, are you going to do anything with that? He goes, ah, ah, he's going to throw it away. I'm going, you think I could have it? And he goes, all right, give it to me. So I, I said, I don't know what's going on with that. So underneath he wrote, Miles to Miles, and he drew a trumpet underneath huh. that, you know? <laughs> and, and, and I still have it in my studio here. And the other thing, so a, a, a few days later he was in there, and, you know, and I was used to the whitey vibe and everything, but all of a sudden he said to me, Jason, can you change that thing over there? You know, like, we're, we're like you know, could, could you make that different? And I'm going, well, yeah, we can make it different. And that was the first time he called me Jason. Mm. And and I, 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 I graduated, you know what <laughs> I mean? I graduated yeah. to, uh, you know, you know, you know, to, to, to like Jason. And so we became great friends. And, you know, the album was a huge success. I mean, he said it many times, you know, that like Marcus and myself making this album, you know, Tommy LaPuma, you know, saved his career, gave him another life from making like good money going over to Europe, making good money to Mel, making like a million freaking dollars, a sh you know, over in Europe. Mm -hmm. He came up to my house one day in like 19, uh, it's summer of 1989 when he just got back from Europe. He called me up one day and said, where do you live? And I said, I, here's where I live. And the next thing I'm in, his, his road guy, Gordon's calling me up, asking me for directions. So he was hanging out at the house with us and everything. You know, I mean, these were things, we used to see him all the time. He was a tremendous, unbelievable influence on my life. That's all I can say. And he embraced my wife, too. He loved Kathy. He just loved Kathy. We used to go over there and hang with him. And, you know, because she never made it a big deal, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. You know, it was like, you know, well, I'm, I'm, you know, we're going over to Miles' house today, you know. We're going to hang with Miles. You know, that wasn't us, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. People go, how do you, you know, people, it's so casual. Go to freaking Miles Davis. I'm going, you know, you got to be in the middle of it to see what it's all about. And what it's all about is, you know, just like he's a person, I'm a person. You know, and I just want to, you know, learn and the knowledge that he has and just hanging out as, as, as friends. It's, it's not what you think it is, but you got to get in there first to understand that. And at, around the same time also that we finished that, Marcus turned me on to Roberta Flack. We did a Roberta Flack record, mm -hmm. Oasis. And then uh, one night we were sitting in the car and uh, said to uh, Kathy, you know, I'm going to make a new album with Luther Vandross and I really want to get Jason on it because Luther wants to go to pop, and I think we can do this, man, with the synthesizers and everything. And the next thing you know, I'm in Montserrat, the Air Studios in Montserrat with Luther, which was like, wow. I mean, you know, if you want to think about the, you know, the, the big time, that's freaking big time. Sure, you know? sure. I mean, you know, in that room, Police, Duran Duran, Eric Clapton, Booker T and the MGs, I mean, forget it, man. We're on this island, Montserrat, brought our wives, you know, Luther was great. And that was a 10-year run I had with Luther. Everything that came about, through everything I'm telling you, man, was long and hard and not easy, mm -hmm. okay? Because I was under the gun every day. I was doing a new technology. I was bringing my stuff to the studio that was basically voodoo witch doctor shit, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Back then, we had to sync stuff to Simpty, sync stuff to click tracks, sync sequences to this. Everybody lined up right, you know? Half the time, the shit, some of it didn't work. Some of it did. We were always doing workarounds and everything. When when I would get a call, for, I would get a call. You know, because, are you available for for uh, for a jingle? Uh, are, you, are you available Wednesday? Yeah. What time of session? Ten a.m. So I used to go and I used to mm -hmm. stay at this hotel in New York called the Excelsior, and it was on the Upper West Side. It was really like inexpensive. It was like fifty-five dollars a night back then, you know. And it was like kind of like a, a lot of Europeans stayed there, you know. It wasn't like a real fancy hotel, but it did the job, you know. So I'd be there. She'd be packing clothes for me for the, for an overnight bag. Because she told me, go in, man, and stay. Because yeah, I made, like, so much freaking money doing this stuff. I mean, the money was amazing back then. It really was. 
You know, there was there was no doubt about it. I mean, look, everybody had all this tons of gear, studios. Well, I'm buying this. Well, really, how much is that? Doesn't matter. Just put it on my lease. You know, <laughs> it's like, you know, that was like that was like the vibe. You know what I mean? But you know, well, you know, they want me to get a 224x if they're going to book the, uh, the the studio for the next few months. What are you doing? I'm buying the freaking thing today. You know what I mean? You know, what I mean, this is what we had. You know, a new synthesizer came out. It was four grand. I bought it. You know, I had to buy it. You know. You know, all of these different kind of vibes and everything just, just brought you into the scene, but the money was there. You know, whether you were playing in a band or whether you were playing, you know, if I was in the studio, I was doing what everybody wanted to do back then, make records, you know, make records. That's everybody, nobody wanted to go out and say, well, I'm in so-and-so's band and I were on the road for the next three months playing the same thing every night on the tour and everything, you know. Uh, I was making the records. We were, we were the ones creating the sound that the artists were going out with and everything. And that was a big deal. You know, to be in there and to be at that level of, of, of a level is like was, but I worked for it, man. You know, I mean, I really, really, really worked for it. That's all I could say. You started out, you know, as, as, as a keyboard player and a, a programmer for synthesizers. And, but then you gradually moved into your own production. Mm-hmm. 1994. Well, actually, earlier than that. You see, I wanted to be a producer. I was producing those years from, like, say, 1980 to 1985. I'd be working with different artists. Like, I had a couple of jingle singers that were, that were doing amazing, and they hired me to produce some tunes for them, you know, even though they were totally full of shit because they, they never wanted to leave the jingle business for the record business. They never wanted to do that because they were making too much money on jingles, but they still wanted to make music and everything. So I'd be producing different people. And then when the opportunity happened with, uh, with Marcus and that whole thing, I just said, you know, I'll be, I can produce, but I'm taking this road. I'm taking this road right now, man, and taking the journey and seeing how far it can take me. And it took me to a place, I mean, of like very high level shit. And, 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 and in the middle of that, I was producing and different friends had heard this. And a friend of mine, who had a company called Lightyear Entertainment, Arnie Holland. They were with uh, uh, RCA, and he broke off from RCA, and, and, and he, he was doing children's music and everything and stuff. But then he wanted to know if I wanted to do an album of nursery rhymes with Felicia Rashad. And I was like, wow, that'd be great. And I made this album called Baby's Nursery Rhymes. It's called Rhyming Time, actually. And it came out great, and I got awards for it and everything like that. So he gave me another project to produce, this thing called The Snow Queen which I did the score for with Sigourney Weaver and everything. And that got great accolades. I won the Cine Golden Eagle Award for that, which is non-theatrical release. And uh, what happened also was that, you know, uh, um, I, I, Jane, he, he also was distributing the Jane Fonda stuff. And Jane Fonda wanted to do like a really hip, modern workout thing, you know, that was happening now. And uh, Arnie said, I got the guy. And so the next thing I'm in, I'm doing this Jane Fonda workout. You know, it came out great. It's called Lean Routine. Still one of their best ones, still one of the best sellers. And so, you know, I started getting these, these little things until he came up to me and said to me that I've got a project that is going to be a major, major, major piece of work. And let's talk about it. It was an album called People, off of a famous book by this guy, Peter Spear, about people, you know, we need it right now, trust me. We need this project right now about, about, about people and togetherness and loving each other and working, you know, blah, 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 you know, you know together and how, why are we fighting when we all want the same thing, you know? And it was going to be animated in, in, in Moscow. He'd been working with the Russians on the Snow Queen, and uh, um, which they did a great job on. And so he wanted them to do people. And so I was going to go, and what they were going to do with people is they were going to go and have songs associated with different things, like, like songs about faith, songs about food, songs about sports, songs about like lullaby and kids and 
and you know to, we, we'd have to look for all new material and we'd have to find artists and all this stuff and he wanted to know if I was interested in doing it and I said absolutely and that was like a two and a half year journey for me I we, we traveled so many different places to record people you know because I got all these great artists I got Al Jarreau and Heavy D and uh Ashaka Khan and Yvonne Linz and uh, Brenda Russell, Vanessa Williams, Dave Koz, uh, you know, uh, 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 Peebo Bryson, you know, I mean, really, it was a big job. And you know what? I got an Emmy nomination for that. It was two and a half, year, two and a half years later. It was at the UN for the 50th anniversary. So, yeah, I was on my own. But still, just remember, when I went on, when I went on my own, I was a keyboardist synthesizer programmer. I was not known as a producer. And so what makes you think somebody wants to give me a production job? I had to start from scratch. I had to start from scratch again, you know, just like I did in 1976. I had to start from scratch and prove to people that I was a producer and everything. And that People album really started proving to some people. The, the, the Jane Fonda workout album really did, because people go, that's freaking Jane Fonda, man? Whoa. <laughs> you know, because, because, because on the Jane Fonda album, I said, you know, they gave me the money and I said, well, watch this. And so I caught calling up all, the, all my heavyweight friends and I said to, you know, uh, like my, my friend Bob, Bob Berg and Jimmy Braylauer, I said, so, man, you know, you, you want to come up? You want to make like 1500 bucks? Yeah, what are you going to do? Come up and play some solos on this Jane Fonda workout thing for me. And we'll barbecue, we'll eat this, we'll play some solos. Yeah, well, I'll come up, I'll do it, let's go, you know? We ended up doing stuff, and it came out great. <laughs> really came out great. Singers, a whole deal. And so, you know, I mean, I was getting a knack for understanding how to go and make these records because I spent seven years with, like, Tommy LaPuma also, who was like one of the legendary producers. And I watched, I watched Tommy put together sessions for seven years. Now, if you're a freaking idiot, you don't pay attention. But if you're in a situation like that and you pay attention, you're going to learn some stuff. And so when I stopped, when, when I, the, the last album I did as a programmer was Michael Jackson History. That was my last gig as a programmer. But, you know, but I mean, I went in there, you know, like, and, and I, I knew I could have produced him at that point, you know, I mean, I produced all these great artists for this People record, and it was a really good calling card for me. And I made a solo album because I wanted to try that, but then I started realizing about, you know, the solo thing is that if the label's not behind you, nothing's going to happen. And I made a great album, Mr. X, I made another one, World Tour, and I just could not get the labels to give me the support that I needed, even though I gave them everything that they wanted. And, and, and there was a couple of years there where, like, I was treated, I, I, I signed... I didn't sign a deal, but I committed myself to a major label. It was Sony, and I can't get into names, but to, to, to do these projects of these arrangements, to make these special arrangements for these songs and have them released, almost like, you know, what some of these compilations are, you know, that are homemade compilations they wanted to make. And the whole thing was, I got treated so terrible, man. The, the, the guy who I thought was my friend who treated me so terrible that I was actually really thinking about quitting the business. Kathy was depressed. And I wasn't doing well and everything. And I had just gotten out of a scene also. And I tell people all the time, you know, that I, that, that you know, that there were 15 years in the studio, 14 hour days, 12 hour days, six days a week, you know, albums that went on for months, you know. Yeah, there was like time off, of, of course there was, but the, but the pressure was so great all the time. And, you know, like I had a meltdown. I had an anxiety meltdown. I had to, I had, I had to go to a psychiatric hospital for two and a half weeks, you know. You know, uh, got me straightened out and everything, and I understood a lot of stuff, and I understood a lot of stuff, and I understood that, you know, that, you know, I'm responsible for myself, man, you know, and, 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 and so we were going through all of this stuff, and then she was, you know, slipping because she was depressed about how, how I was getting treated by supposedly friends, but, so anyway, I wasn't into doing that much music and everything like that, and I kind of laid back, and she was substitute teaching, and then one day, I got a phone call from Jay Beckenstein, who was the saxophone player in Spira Gyra, 
And he goes, hey, Jason, you know, hey, remember I told you that if I got a record deal, I want you to produce a couple of songs? And I said, yeah, yeah, I, I remember. Well, I got a deal, man, because I got Spyro Gyra on Wyndham Hill, and they gave me a solo deal. I want to do this solo record. I'm going, wow, it's fantastic. He goes, I want you to do a couple of songs. And I said, to be very honest with you, I don't know whether I'm really up to doing this, man. I'm totally, like, fried on this. No, 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 no. You're going to do it. You're going to do this, man. You're going to do this. And besides the fact, I need you to do this weather report tune for me, Black Market. And I went, wow, that sounds very interesting. Yeah, you could do it, man. And I did this version of Black Market for him, along with, a, along with an African tune that was very, like, world music with African singers and everything. And what happened was that um, I made this weather report tune, and he comes up to me and tells me, there it is. There's an album. you got to make an album of all weather report stuff, man. That's what you got to do. And I'm going, you think so? And he goes, absolutely. So, of course, I did some demos, and I started shopping it around. And, of course, everybody turned it down, you know. We're looking for the next weather report. We're looking for the next weather report. And I said, if you find the next weather report, you never signed them. Because you think it was too much. You, you know, you, you don't know what the, the next weather report is, you know. But what happened was that, was that a guy got me a deal on this label, Telarc. And all of a sudden, you know, my production vibe was like starting to pick up steam again. And I picked up a lot of steam at that point where I got the Yvonne Lynn's deal happening. You have to try to get that for like eight years. I got a Grammy from that, a Grammy nomination. Then I made an, then I made an album with Gato Barbieri and uh, he, they had heard my Yvonne Lynn's record and loved it. And I made an album with him. We got a good Latin Grammy nomination. You know, and I started saying to myself, you know, I got to start morphing my stuff into live now because I've got a couple of projects. And so that's when I started reinventing myself again. So I've reinvented myself like almost four times. And it's not easy. I'll tell you that right now. It's very easy to give up. You know, my projects that I've been doing, I've been bringing out playing live. I did To Grover With Love. I did a dedication to Grover when he died. And, um, you know, so I bring that out. I've been, I've been playing that. I played that at the Hollywood Bowl a few years ago. I mean, I opened up for George Benson. I brought that to Cape Town, South Africa also, and brought it to the uh, Blue Note in Tokyo and the Burks Jazz Festival. So I've done that show a bunch of times. People love that. And I've done it in all kinds of configurations. I brought my Celebrating the Musical Weather Report project out there where I was able to get guys from the Dave Matthews Band to play because they were off for a year and a half. So Carter Beaufort and Jeff Coffin did some shows with me, some big freaking shows, man. We did one for 15,000 people at the Clearwater Jazz Holiday. You know, it was wonderful, man. And these guys were great. They treated me like amazing. And I realized, you know what, I've earned their respect. And that's the whole vibe, man. You have to earn the respect. You have to earn the respect. It's really hard, but but you know, but but that's what makes you friends in this business with people. You become good friends with musicians and everything because of their respect they have for you and you have for them. And you know, and otherwise you just you can be friends. We don't have to work together, but you know that's it. But a lot of the work comes through being going and um, you know having these relationships. And all the years that I was working in the studio, I was collecting on my Rolodex. You know, I mean, I was I was putting names on my Rolodex, man. You know, from everywhere. And so, uh, you know, it, 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 it's helped. Look, you need some smarts, man. The only way you get the smarts is, is by learning it from other people. You can't learn it from yourself, you know? I, I mean, you can't. It's, it, it's impossible to know. When I went in there and I saw, like, Tommy work and how he did certain things, and, you know, even to the amount of ordering food, okay, I had that down to a science. You know, musicians always want to eat, you know what I mean? And it's like, and it's like if, 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 if I had guys in the studio playing, you know, and, and we do a song, I'd say, okay, check this out and everything. So, look, man. I got the menu here, a menu book here. I thought we'd maybe order some dinner. And uh, then when we order dinner, when they make it, we, we'll, we'll cut another track. I was like, yep, that sounds great. You know what I mean? You know, instead of like, let's cut the track and then order dinner. You know what I mean? 
let's let let's order dinner. They'll make it, and by the time we're done cutting this track, you know what I mean? We'll go and we'll uh, be ready to do this. Everybody's, everybody's, everybody's like jacked up now, you know. Everybody, so the energy is like really good at that point, also. Not that it's not good all day, but this extra little vibe happening, you know. And then after dinner, and you give everybody like a half an hour just to chill and you know take care of their business of the day. You come back in, man. The freaking takes and the sessions go amazing because the energy level is really good. And these are things you learn along the way. You just can't learn this, you know. You know, I was engin- I was doing this thing at Berkeley College of Music, where I'd like to go back up to again, because they're just learning notes and stuff. They're not learning about being musicians and what it really takes. And so, and so, you know, so I was up there and everything. I said, you know, I want to work in a recording studio. Oh, you know what I would do? I said, well, I have I have advice for people that want to work at a studio. Young people, yeah, yeah, yeah. Go. Well, my first piece of advice: go up there, learn the menu book. Because if you're going to be an assistant engineer or something like that, and, and, and a band's going to want something, you've got to know what restaurant to go to, to go with them to. Man, that's going to get you work. These people start laughing. Come on, stop it. I'm going, okay, don't listen to me, you know. And then the other piece of advice I have to you, you should be the number one best coffee maker in the world. Because if you make great coffee, producers are going to want to work with you. People started laughing and cracking up, going, oh, yeah? You think that's so funny, man? You know? I said, I was doing a session in, 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 in L.A. just a few weeks ago. And I was telling him, you know, you know this, this this story. And the guy goes, "He's crazy. This producer's crazy, man." He comes into the studio with a paint chip, and he goes, "You see this paint chip? Yeah, this is the color I like my coffee." And so I got to see it over the years because, like Ray Bardani, who I worked with a bunch, and he was like, "I want Tony to be my engineer. Why? Oh, he makes great coffee, and he knows how to open up the tape room so I can smoke cigarettes." You know, I mean, you know, there's all these little nuances that people don't realize. You know what I mean? Well, I think it, I think you have you have to be sensitive to the people around you. I mean, this doesn't just apply to to sessions, but it, it really is important that you can relate to the people you're working with. And oh, please, and critically uh, important. Crit- yeah, critically important. Remember, you're sitting in a room with people for months at a time. Four people in a room it could be like me, Marcus Miller, Ray, and Luther Vandross. And then add Nat Adderley Jr. sometimes. But you know what I mean? There's four of us in the same room together for 12, 14 hours a day, freaking for three months. You know, man, come on, man. These are complex individuals also. Right. You know? Right. You know, I do, I do, I have to tell you something also, man. You know, that like, you know, a lot of stuff in, in my production things started really coming together when I started using your uh, mic pre. Really? You know? I started bringing that mic pre, man. People are going, what's this thing? I'm going, it's DW Furnace, man. They're going, wow, this thing sounds fantastic. And I'm going, yeah, hello, you know? So I really started using that stuff. People were really getting into it. And the compressor also, the compressor was freaking off the hook, man. I mean, everybody making EDM music should be using your compressor. Yeah, well, thanks. And I mean, you go back to, I guess, where did we meet? I guess it was in an AES show. No, it was through Gerson Rosenblum. That's right. You know, I guess you know the story that Gerson's dad, who owned Medley Music. In, in, Harry, of course. I, I, Harry was a great guy. yeah. My studio, my second studio, was in the building that used to be their warehouse their, for the music store. And when they moved, they moved a few blocks down the road to Bryn Mawr, and they had uh, this building. They had another building for their warehouse, and this one was not used much. And they offered it to me, and I, I, I think Gerson was in high school at the time. He was a really young guy. But it could have been. Yeah, both of them were so good to me, so helpful to me. And again, you know, it illustrates your point. It's the uh, 
It's the personal relationships that make these things work. You kidding me, man? I learned that, and it's, and, and it's just so much from Tommy also, because Tommy had friends like Al Schmidt, everything. I mean, Tommy, they would do stuff for Al that was crazy. I mean, you know, if Al's fee was like, you know, $2,000 a day, he got him $5,000. You know what I mean? You know, he was getting Al like, he would get, I, think, I think when they were doing Diana Crowell, he was getting like $5,000 a mix or something like that. You know what I mean? You take care of your people, man, because that's what creates loyalty. It's, it's like, look, one of my longest friends that I have is Will Lee. My God, you know how many tracks Will has played on for me over the years? Crazy amount of track, crazy, crazy. You look at that man, and and I just said to myself, look at how lucky I am. And I had access to Will, and all these amazing Steve Gadd and Buddy Williams and, and Gene Lake and all these amazing musicians that I could call and use because we all had a symbiotic relationship doing this thing. You know, you know, yeah, it, it is. It's all about the relationships you can create. And let me tell you something, man. You don't realize when you're in the middle of the relationship when you're like 22 years old that you still might know the guy when you when you're going to be 50. And where, where are you going to be? And that's some of my friends I have. And that's what's so hard about the, the period we're going through right now because we're losing some beautiful people, man, and, you know, that are like right in our wheelhouse. I mean, you know, it could be, who knows? Nobody's promised tomorrow, you know? And look, my, you know, my mother just passed away. She was 92, you know, and everything. And I, and, and, and I understand, you know, the, the realities of it and everything. But when you see what you've got out of this life and if you're really happy with what you got out of this life, why do you want it to end? Why it's not just a regular humdrum world, you know? A, a, a few years ago, and don't get me wrong, man. There's people out there because I saw this. I was, I was watching this show, man, by by accident. It was late at night, and sometimes I'll just channel surf and everything when I'm when I'm done. And I don't play music every night, especially now when you know when I'm just working on a few things and there's no gigs and there's no anything. You know, I mean, I'm just kind of kicking back at some points, you know, and just saying, well, I'm watching a movie. I'll do this. You know, you, you just you, you just realize, you know, like you know, okay, man, you know how much time. You know, you're putting into it from now till then, and you know, just 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 the whole paradigm that kind of follows you through as to where you're at when you uh, uh, you know reach the place that reach the place that we're at because of you know look at all the people that we're that we're losing. You know, I mean, I've lost some such some such dear dear friends, man, that really helped me so much. You know, I had this band called Soul Summit with Reggie Young and Bob Babbitt and Steve Ferroni. And we had we did a few concerts together, and we recorded one live, which was really great. And the bottom line was that I mean Reggie and Bob are living legends, man. I mean they were telling me stories about doing Elvis and Gladys Knight and Motown, and Reggie telling me about you know Memphis and everything. These are things, man, that are the building blocks of what your career are is you know. And the whole thing is. There is nothing, man. Young musicians should get along with older musicians with no problem. That's how it was when I was coming up in the scene, you know. I showed them respect and I showed them the vibe that they deserved and that's why they appreciated me because I showed them the respect that they had earned all those years and didn't put myself on the same level as them because I wasn't. But now you see what's happening and these kids, you know, they just think that, that they're way beyond you and they can play four million notes but they can't play like the feeling that Bill Evans can play or... Wes Montgomery or Jimi Hendrix or you know, the people that really had the instrument as part of them. You know, you got to be willing to go out there and eat shit for a long time, no matter, even though you don't think you deserve to, you know. I've played in front of five people, and I've played in front of, the most I ever played in front of was 18,000 people I played in front of, you know, at the Hollywood Bowl. You know, and it was awesome, man. It was like, you know, but you had to be ready for that. You had to be ready to understand how to play in front of 18,000 people. And you have to learn how to play at a club, and everything requires a certain amount of experience. And I just don't think that people out there these days value the experience the same way. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, I've always said that 
there's a lot of talented people out there, but oh, yeah. the one thing that separates the successful people from, from the others is the talent to make things happen. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You've got to make it so people will end up trusting you, especially as a producer, you know. You, they, they have to put their hands in your thing. Susie Boggess was the same thing. I mean, you know, I saw her play one night. I saw her play for 5,000 people at a fairground. Man, she killed it. The next thing you know, a few years later, she's at B.B. King's. It's like a half a house, you know. And, and I'm like, what's going on? Well, she had a baby. She had this. You know, the radio didn't play her anymore. She wasn't like the young, vibrant. You know, she was young and vibrant. Don't get me wrong, but she was in her 40s. You know what I mean? But, you know. You know, young, vibrant, new in town, so fresh-faced. You know, another radio wasn't playing that much anymore. When I went to go see her play, I sat there and she said to me, what am I going to do, Jason? And I go, I know what you're going to do. I got it. And we ended up making this album called Sweet Danger, Susie Boggess. And it was her comeback album that got incredible reviews because I knew that sometimes you take a break from where it is, man, and you go and you keep your roots, but you also take it to a little different place, man, so you can go back and try to find yourself again. So we made this album, Sweet Danger, where we mixed Nashville musicians and New York musicians and with the, the New York Serious Cats with the Nashville Serious Cats, and it came out just freaking great. And all of a sudden, she's back out there again, man, playing, and, 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 and she's touring, and, you know, she's in a different space of it and everything, but she definitely regained the career. And that's what you have to learn about, you know, who are you going to trust with this whole thing? I've trusted people. What a mistake I made. You know, I've made, everybody's made mistakes, and the whole thing is you can't get better if you don't make mistakes. And I always said this about myself. I said, you know, I've had a good career and I've had a career where at some points I made a lot of money, other points I didn't, but there were unbelievable moments that kept my life moving to, I couldn't do it, which is why I'm writing a book right now and doing this one-man show. But I never had that moment where I really had that hit it. You know what I mean? But here it comes, the flush of cash coming at you. You know what I mean? Take it, put it away. You know what I mean? But, and when I mean that, I don't mean like $10,000 or $20,000. I mean like, you know, $300,000, $500,000, you know, from a hit or something like that, you know? And I keep on saying, well, you know, man, it may never happen, but as long as it hasn't, it still could happen. So, so you always kind of think and you always have a little hope. You know, like I put up my new album, Black Magic. So what happened? I put up my album, Black Magic, gets unbelievable reviews everywhere, man. It comes out March 6th, reviews all music guide, this magazine, interviews. They love it. And I'm going to Europe. I'm going to, look, here we are. Everything's canceled. I'm starting from scratch again on that. Well, but now I realize, and you know, one of the things that I'm going to be doing is this one-man show where, you know, where I can just travel by myself and, you know, and, and play music, tell the stories, you know, tell stories, play music, get people into it and everything. But I have a book, solo piano album, and I'm, and I'm hoping that, you know, until we can get this thing going again, because you're not going to be able to go hear music for 35,000 people for a while. But, you know... I might as well tell the people that were doing it, you know, that I've got a new song out that I made as a special single, and it's called Pretty World. And it was originally done by Sergio Mendez in, in uh, um, 1968. And it was written by this guy, um, Antonio Adolfo and Gasparo, Ti Tiberio Gasparo, his name is. And they had this beautiful song called Sa Maria. And then Sergio Mendes heard it, and he had the Alan and Marilyn Bergman write lyrics to it in 1968, and it was a beautiful hit for them, big hit, Pretty World. And I was grooving through YouTube one night, and I saw the video for Pretty World, and I said, you know what? This is the song we need right now, man. We need this song to lift our heads up and to make us feel like, you know, we're alive again and everything. Because everything's so depressing. So I called up some dear friends of mine. I told them, I want to do this. I want to give all the money away 
if whatever comes in, let's hope we can bring money in. But whatever comes in, I want to give to struggling musicians right now in the, at the Jazz Coalition. So we made this on Pretty World, and we ended up doing also a video for it. That's wonderful, and it's out right now. It's it, it it's out it, it's out it's, it's out right now. And the only thing I wanted to do was to bring some happiness to some people, man, because we're not in that place right now. And I tell you something, the response I've gotten on this has been fantastic from heavy serious jazz guys, saying to me, man. You know what, man? You definitely put a bounce in my step today with that song, man. That's great. And then somebody, and then somebody just wrote on Facebook, you know, a heavyweight jazz critic, you know, because it's not jazz; it's it's more pop. But they're getting what I tried to do with it. You know what I mean? And uh, and and it's since vocalist Pamela Driggs, her name is. She sang she sang just like Lonnie Hall did in in Brazil '66. It's beautiful, man. And so what happens is that you know, uh, you know, you know, this 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 guy wrote. I listen to this song. It makes me want to go put the top down and drive along the shore, you know? And that's what I'm trying to do. I want people to feel that when they feel it, because we're not getting those feelings anymore. I've been talking with producer and keyboard player Jason Miles. Thank you for listening. Your comments, questions, and suggestions are always welcome. My email is dwfern at dwfern.com. This is my take on music recording. I'm Doug Fern. See you next time.